Zach. Come on, Zach. Zach. Good boy. He's a good climber. Good wow. Good boy. I can't believe those little lacy climb like that. Doesn't he do well? He jumped right up here. Yeah. It's like almost Doesn't as high as my hip. Well. Cool spot, right? Amazing. So where's the Continental Divide? Uh, behind you. A bourbon and pie, a bourbon and pie. We're gonna sit down and have bourbon and pie. We talk about that, talk about your past. A bourbon and pie, we're gonna talk about that. This is Bourbon and Pie, the podcast about effectiveness and effective people. As I'm gathering information for a book I'm writing on effectiveness, I talk to people from all walks of life and we discuss their journeys and the ways they're effective in what they do. My hope is you'll find some of these tips and tricks applicable to you and you can apply some of them to your own arsenal of methods and habits. So why Bourbon and Pie? Why the name? Well, my first practice podcast with my father-in-law, Popstone, while we're sitting in his man cave on large brown leather recliners drinking bourbon, and while we're doing that, my mother-in-law comes in, Sheila, and she brings us some key lime pie. And so I talked to some friends about it, and they thought it was kind of a name that sounds good, especially because it's something I typically do. I have bourbon and pie when I interview people. It has nothing to do with effectiveness specifically. Other than if you work smarter and more effectively, you can enjoy the better things in life, like bourbon and pie. Just working smarter, that is. So this is the first podcast I'm putting out, and to date I've got 10 more in the queue that I'll be putting out each week. I really love the idea of an effective community. That is sharing out what effectiveness life hacks you might have. And if so, I'd be interested to hear more about them and possibly publish them in my book or website, or just provide links back to your own website or postings in order to make that happen. Just an overall sharing community. So let's jump in. This podcast was recorded in May of 2019 in Evergreen, Colorado, and I'm talking to Ben Edwards. He's my former boss and mentor who lives with his wife, Louise, and his kids, George and Hebe, close away at school. He also has two dogs, Yuki and Zach, three cats, Steve, Buster, and Moose, and three horses, Lacoste, Dexter, and Declan, who live at a close-by ranch. I should mention that we're drinking Buffalo Trace, which is currently one of my favorite top five bourbon whiskeys. And for pie, we're eating a local cherry pie. I have a, I have a kind of a pretty eclectic background. Um, um, I was born in L.A., but my parents were both British, and my dad was a chemical engineer, and so grew up all over the place, a little like a, what you Americans call, although I am American as well, we call an army brat. It's yeah. Like that kind of an upbringing. Yeah. Um, so I lived in, lived in the U.S. and the U.K. I spent quite a bit of my time and my childhood in, um, in the Middle East, in Tehran, mm. pre-revolutionary Tehran, and then Oman, which is on the Arabian Peninsula. East of, uh, there's a cat, <laughs> east of uh, the United Emirates. And then, yeah, and then um, my career has been pretty eclectic as well. It's going to be just been a kind of series of, uh, series of different things, really, very different. I, I spent 14 years as a journalist and foreign correspondent. I was in London and Tokyo 
in New York, and then I got fed up with journalism, got kind of bored with it. What was it with journalism that, what was it that you got you out of it, or what was the bored part of it? Fake news, man. Fake news? <laughs> <laughs> it was all fake news. Actually, it's- No, really? Really? Well... At this moment in Ben's career, he came to a crossroads. He was struggling with getting his story out about the Enron scandal of 2001. In the end, his publisher decided to not publish the story. The result was he decided to focus his passion on something else, and then he made a career change. There was a, there was a story that I was researching for a long time um, on um, Enron. And my story is that Jeff Skilling, the CEO of Enron, Jeff, Jeff Skilling, mm-hmm. Was innocent of all charges. The, the perils of bourbon and pie when you're eating pie and trying to say someone's mm, name with sorry. <laughs> so yeah, My story was that he was innocent of all the charges brought against him. Mm. So did the government get to the economists to have them not publish the story? When I asked Ben the question of what drove him away from writing for the economist, you'll hear that he's got a strong sense of purpose and passion for what he wants to do. And you'll you'll hear you know that there's a lot of passion for why he started writing for the Economist, and a lot of that just uh, didn't stay throughout the course of his career there. So that kind of disheartened you to have any passion about something, or what was it that? Yeah, kind of it was like, kind of yeah. Like, sort like of why, like, well, why am I doing all this well, work? The Economist in general, um, you know, would publish some very um, what you might call uh, uh, controversial or non-mainstream or, you know, um, contrarian, I think is a good way of putting it. They would be willing to publish pretty much all that stuff. I was always interested in those stories, the ones that, um, you know. Against um, public opinion. Yeah, the, 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 you know, because I wanted to make people think. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so there's a kind of a public consensus on something, and I would often take the other side and write that and say, well, what about if we thought about it this way or looked at it this way? What evidence do we have for this? Mm-hmm. And so in general, that was why I, you know, I spent 10 years in Congress and they were a wonderful employer and they published almost everything I, I, I wrote. And a lot of it was like that. Yeah. And this one they wouldn't. I was like, well, if, geez, if they're not going to publish this story, then I'm done. And I was kind of, you know, bored with it as well. I've been doing it for 14, 15 years. And yeah. It was, um, I wanted to do something different. Yeah. yeah. And now you're doing something way different. <laughs> well, since then, I did a whole number of things. I was a speechwriter. Mm. Um, I, I, I went into marketing. I ran corporate marketing for IBM. I ran digital marketing for IBM. I was, I was IBM's chief communications officer for mm. a while, uh, which is a very interesting and extremely challenging job. Um, I, I did product management. Uh, I ran a digital media business. Um, met you at PayPal. Um, that was, I guess, that was kind of a product management engineering gig, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, now I run my own company and uh, have clients and consult all over the country with my clients. So it's another another new chapter in this um, ever-evolving saga. <laughs> this is where Ben starts talking about how his journey has picked up a significant line of pieces to a larger puzzle talks about like understanding that each person has their own unique perspective and gets into the environments in which they work. When you're in these different roles that you've been in, have there been anything that you've taken with you in terms of uh, 
I'll call it like your philosophy or belief system. Do you think it's really kind of solidified in some ways or do you feel like it's evolving? Well, I guess there's a, there's a kind of a, what makes me, what motivates me and what, um, what brings out the best of me. Right. And so there's that question. I don't think that changes much. I, I feel like that has been, since I left journalism, at least, although even even actually when I was doing journalism, it's always been about people. Mm. Um, the what really motivates me is understanding people. People, I kind of feel like people, they're like puzzles, um, and you know they're, they're multi-layered, super interesting, and have different experiences and you know radically different perspectives, which always you know interests me how different people can look at the same thing and have a completely different view or even sense of reality, right, um, uh, from the thing. And so that's what's always, you know, interested me. And then the latter part of my career, like the corporate career and the consulting, it's it's been focused on, I guess you could call it human potential, right? So how do we, how do we harness uh, better human potential? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is, we haven't even begun to understand how to do that as a, as a society. Okay. We, not as individuals, but human potential as, as, a, as a whole. I mean, well, or along the line. Well, that's interesting, right? Yes. So, and I was thinking about this the other day, I'm, I'm actually giving a presentation, a speech to a bunch of people in New York next week. And, mm -hmm. and the, the topic is growth. And then I was thinking about this book, The Growth Mindset, which I have to read because, you know, it, that's the topic of my my speech really is growth. And I'm wondering whether, you know, the growth mindset, I don't know, I've got to read the book, but it sounds like it's something that it comes from the individual, right? It sounds like, well, you, you either have this growth mindset or you don't have this growth mindset and and then I think, well, all right, well, I'm listening to this and maybe I'm, I'm reading your list of things that, you know, there's a fixed mindset, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, well, maybe I read this list and I'm like, oh, geez, I've got a fixed mindset. Well, what do you, what do you do about that? Do you kind of wake up in the morning and go, okay, now I'm going to have a growth mindset. And now I'm, I don't really kind of buy into that. I feel like these things are much more about the environment in which people live and work, right? So, you know, and behavior is environmental, right? And so it's a system of things around me that causes me to think and behave in a certain way. And if that is resulting in a fixed mindset, right, then we need to look at that environment and change things in that environment that's going to cause me to now start exploring and understanding and taking advantage of a growth mindset, right? There's not, it's not a, like an act of individual will that makes that happen. It's yeah. a combination of things in one's environment, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're incredibly sensitive as yeah. human beings to our environments. And, and so that's what, I, that's what I work on is the environment. And, and when you say environment, you're, you're speaking to physical and I've heard you say the word virtual environment. Um, so first, this is first tell me your definition of virtual environment. What that, what that, what is? Well, when I, when I talk about environment, I'm talking about 
you know, anything that acts on me as an individual from outside. Uh-huh. Right, so yeah. that that could your be, group, the people could be, you talk yes, to, that could be the the people you interact with, yeah, right, and how that works out, and that could be your physical space, yeah, right, like the physical space we're sitting in now, is having is having influence on how we behave. You and I are in our living room kitchen here, yeah, right, yeah. If we were sat in a federal penitentiary <laughs> in a cell. With guards I, looking over us, I I guess we would be behaving a little differently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We'd be we wouldn't be quite so loose and relaxed. Maybe. Right. 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 Or, you know, and probably would be able to drink bourbon. Have, no bourbon would be allowed, and we'd have to smell it. Pie. That's pie is a, a never pie because you could you put knives in it and smuggle it in. But you could never do that. So that's a kind of a physical environment thing, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's people, and then there's the physical environments, and then there are it's sort of like the, the sort of questions of how we work, what you might call method or process, right? Those are environmental things, right? Because we we kind of, we get conditioned to those things, right? We get conditioned to, well, this is how we work, this is how we do our work, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So that becomes an environmental thing. You talked about virtual. I would say, you know, virt- a virtual, uh, virtual environments are just kind of virtual extensions of those things. So we can have virtual physical space, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We hang out in Slack. That might be an example of that, and so on, right? Um, and right. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so virtually, you're talking about Slack and other. Yeah. Things. So that's kind of a that's sort of been been my area of interest and exploration is how do we bring out extraordinary and it's always extraordinary human potential by adjusting and designing environments that are supportive of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been doing it for like 15 plus years now. Yeah. And I have, it's never ceased to amaze me just what humans are capable of when mm-hmm. you provide them with the right environment. I'm asking Ben a question about being effective internal and external. That, that is a consultant versus being an internal employee. And I find it kind of interesting that his answer is based on his approach to the work. Um, he doesn't want to come in and just do an assessment. He wants to actually make an impact. I don't think it's, uh, I was kind of expecting that, right? That, that as a consultant, you're, um, you know, on the one hand, you, you have the privilege of, you know, um, looking more horizontally across multiple different clients and environments and mm-hmm. industries and so you learn you know a lot right and that's been tr- definitely true but I I had a I had this sort of apprehension that um, I would get frustrated because I wouldn't be so effective mm. uh, and actually that hasn't been true at all um, but actually I've I, I, I don't really know I don't think there's been any difference in my ability to be effective in this work as a consultant or as a an internal leader which is kind of strange yeah i didn't think about it yeah, it's like yeah, well yeah. wow how is that true and i guess it's um, pre, it's, it's also a pre, pre, preconceived sometimes right if you have an assumption i do as for my question i have an assumption that the effectiveness would be less likely unless you, your your task is exactly that right say you're, you've come into just an assessment and provide a recommendation and, and but my work is never that it's more 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't want to engage if all you want from me is an assessment. Yeah. Right. Um, I actually I bought that book you recommended, uh, Humble Consulting. Yeah. At Shine. and yeah. I've so yeah. far I've read the blurb on the back. Yeah. And it's 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 encouraging because it, it sort of talks about you know we need humility as consultants and yeah. you know we need to we need to go in there and we need a more he talks about on the blurb at least yeah. um, he talks about having a more intimate relationship yeah. with with you know your client and being there for them yeah. and sort of helping them through it all yeah right which is what I do is I, I want to be there and help them through these difficult changes that need to happen for them to become more effective yeah right so it's kind of the same deal and then you're always working by um, uh, humble consulting with Ed and Ed oh, yeah. and, and what he was saying about yeah. what, what that meant, meant to you. And oh yeah, and so, so yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I guess where what I'm trying to do is help people reconceive or rethink uh, things. A lot of the time is what I'm trying to do. Is yeah. that's like coaching, right? And that's a pretty subtle thing to do, right? And regardless of whether you're their boss or you're some outside consultant who they, they're working with, it's the same deal. It's just as difficult to try and try and persuade someone to look at something differently or work differently, mm -hmm. right? Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't found it any less rewarding or less effective. Ben talks about making change in organization and the challenges in doing that. When those changes do need to happen, it's not necessarily one group that needs to be worked on, but because of their relationships with other areas in the company, it makes that change very challenging to do. It's important to point out here that Ben has a degree of empathy that is actually pretty common among people who are successful in making change happen. And you'll see it all over LinkedIn and all over the internet where people talk about the importance of empathy. I have a sort of a deepening appreciation for how difficult it is to change how people do work. And so, you know, you could, you could look at that at the team level and say, well, let's, let's um, form and um, launch and make successful an effective team. And you could say, well, that's perhaps not that difficult. And perhaps it isn't, at least to begin with. But then the team... You in the end start thinking, well, who's the team interacting with? The team is interacting with their colleagues, right? Um, their managers, right? Their functional heads, their customers, their suppliers, right? And they they have been working with some notion of how work gets done. They've all been working with some what is now, from the team's perspective, a legacy notion of how the work gets done. But in order for the team to be sustainable and how it works, it has to change all their ideas about how the work gets done too. Okay. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of this work that happens inside companies um, runs into this problem of we've got to consider, you know, the wider environment and then the wider environment and the wider environment. And we've got to have a plan for changing all of those things because you know, a team's changed, but it's customers haven't. And the customers are saying, no, we don't want you to work this way. That's not what they're literally saying, but effectively that's what they're saying is, no, we would like you to work the way you were working before because that's how we're used to you working. 
and we are resisting the idea that you're going to work in a different way, mm. right? Or the managers might, you know, feel, no, I don't want the team working this way. I was very happy with the way it was before, and we want to do that, right? And it involves every layer of the organization, the individual, yeah. the team, the management, the leadership, all parts of the organization are inevitably and always required to change those things mm -hmm. because the source of those problems is the way all those layers of the organization interact with each other right there's no there's no uh, one sort of root cause or one source it's not like well it's the way the teams behave or it's not it's the it's this damn management piece right they're screwing everything up it's inevitably and always the interaction of those things that causes these issues. Do you ever see those kind of people when you come in and identify them as your heroes or or your advocates and and try to empower them? And you know, because because it seems to be those people have those people can save you a lot of outside analysis. Having someone come in and look at what the problems are when they're just going, I've been telling you that the whole time. So, um, do you ever look at those kind of individuals? Well, it's kind of interesting. There's this like. There's this question of do people recognize the problems mm -hmm. inside companies? And I would say overwhelmingly yes. Right? If I, I can come in and I can sit down and have an honest conversation with, and it's amazing what people will tell you as a consultant, but they, they're, they're pretty damn honest, right? They'll just tell you, you know. Um, and so, you know, one of my lines is, you know, how's work going? Right? And then people are like a little confused. I mean, in general, how how is the work happening here? Is it is it good? Is it bad? And you know, and then I follow up, and people are like pausing. They're like, mm, should I say something here? And then I'll follow up with something like, um, you know, normally, you know, I ask this question, and the answer I get is it's a complete clusterfuck, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, because that's generally the way work happens, and it's unfortunate but true. Mm -hmm. And then you see the ice breaks, and everyone goes, yeah, you're right. It's absolute clusterfuck here, and then people unburden themselves right it's chaotic it's ad hoc we don't have a process we had like too many meetings we've got too much email like the managers are crazy you know this these other teams are crazy this department over here they're crazy right and mm -hmm. so it's just this general sense that you know work could be going a hell of a lot better than it is uh, and we sort of pretend that we're all very professional and things are all buttoned up and all of the kind of the corporate you know language and all that stuff is yeah we're, we're trained highly trained professionals doing great work but there's this sort of underlying reality that works a complete mess mm -hmm. um so i think like there's there's a general understanding of you know uh, especially when you talk to the teams actually trying to do the work now that may not be true of the managers and the leaders they may be living in some alternate delusional reality up there Right, because they're just not close to the work, uh, which is another source of problems in and of itself. Right, they just don't know. Yeah. Um, but in general, I think people who are actually doing the work or trying to get the work done uh, have got a pretty good appreciation of whether it's going well or not and what the problems are. I think when it comes to change, though, right, are you actually willing to put yourself out there and try and change something? Mm. That's actually a very small set of people. Who are actually willing to risk themselves, right, um, to go do that? And those are the people who we need to find 
if we're going to at least start the process of change, we need to find those brave, or you might even call foolhardy souls, yeah. who are willing to right um, change something. Perhaps because, like you say, they're just deeply frustrated. It's like I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I'm going to act. Or perhaps just because they they have courage, right? They're just naturally courageous people. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps just because they define themselves in that way, and so that's how they work, and right, that's how they think about what they do. Um, but those are the people. You know, it's funny. It's like I have a client. So you know, it's a typical person. You know, we. We don't collaborate. There's all the values on the wall, right? Collaboration, innovation, integrity, trust. Of the or, company, lobby. Or, or like any that, wall so, yeah. of any company, you get yeah. the same bad values. Yeah. It's all the things we don't have, right? Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. It's yeah. like we went and did some research and we found out all the things we don't have as a company. And then we made them into a poster and called it our values. Yeah. <laughs> right? I worked for a startup in that the VP of HR said, I'll never work at a company who has their values in the lobby on the wall. Uh, and she said, I would never, and, and, and I don't know, I think it's probably along the same lines as what you're saying. It's like, you know, people need to live it rather than just show it. Well, yeah, because it's like, well, whoever made that poster, it's like, job done. Yeah. We've got our values yeah. now. We got it. Like, all they got to do is it's read the posters. In the lobby. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be true. Yeah, because it's so psychological. You look at it every day. Of course There's they're going to live that this way. This client I have, right, they have that same poster all over the place. And, you know, the reality is the 180-degree opposite of that, right? Yeah. And so we're, we're working with them on trying to change things. And back to our, our earlier conversation about physical environment, one of the things we're doing is trying to get them out of their cubes. They literally have... Cute, they're in cute caves, right? They're like in their own little cave, and they're all. If you read the, you know, employee survey stuff, they're all complaining that they don't collaborate. And they were, like, how on earth are you going to collaborate when you're in these individual caves, right? I don't understand how that is going to happen. Okay, so we try and get them out of the caves, but then they're all hell breaks loose. It's like, no, don't take our caves away from us. Yeah, we have to continue living in these caves. Well, let's talk about that because. <laughs> Because in this, the neighborhood concept, it is, is a very popular concept that's coming in, and it has a combination of focus time, collaboration, and all the, the different sort of environments needed, or situations, I guess you would say. Um, and um, I have a heart for the introverts, right? The introverts are the ones I focus on in, in, in my work and with what I do. And a lot of them need that deep focus time. They got that. They need caves. They need caves. So, and a lot of them do, because what a lot of us have to do is go back, decompress, like heads down sort of thing. We all, we, do. We all do, right? Yeah. So, but you're right, introverts need it. So what, what's your answer though? Uh, so what's your answer to that? Like, so, um, so, so, so my answer, answer, my answer is, like, yes. you know, you know this, right? My answer is mixed. Yeah. You know, it's like people have these, you know, they set up these uh, false dichotomies. This is a false dichotomy. Open space versus private space is a false dichotomy. We need both, right? So open space we need for collaboration and teamwork. I call that the default space of the modern corporation or the modern organization because my belief is the fundamental unit of production is the team, and the team needs to be together, collaborating together. Literally, physically together is the ideal situation. They're around one table, shared table, and they're working together as a team. 
However, like you point out, everyone on that team also needs private space yeah. and introverts need it acutely because they need it to recharge like physically they get literally physically exhausted yeah with open seating right yes so it's not a it's not like you know this raging debate versus open space and privates and cubes or whatever so no te teams need both yeah right we need mixed space of like you know so that when you know, we come together as a team at prescribed moments yeah. from, for, you know, peak productivity and peak creativity. Yeah. And then we spend a lot of time also alone, right? And if we don't provide them that space in our organizations, people are going to find it. They need it. it has, it's essential for them. So they're going to find it, right? They're not going to come in, right? Or they'll go find some quiet corner somewhere else. Right? Uh, yeah. I, I like this. This question, it's about, it's simply, when have you failed successfully, you know? When you had a plan, plan didn't work, things fell apart, and then actually the peanut butter and chocolate came together and it turned out pretty good. So do you have any stories like that that, that kind of made an impact on you? And Well, I tell one actually from our time together. Um, it's a funny story. And... And so I talk, I talk a lot about diversity of teams yeah. and the importance of diversity. And so when I, when, and when I say that, I'm talking about all forms of diversity, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, and there are many, many different kinds of sources of diversity, right? It could be gender, uh, it could be like where you come from, it could be your politics, it, it could be any number of different dimensions um, but what we're looking for is people who think different from each other right and so those sources of, them, of diversity are you know predictors of thinking differently mm -hmm. if you like mm -hmm. so here was a funny one uh well it's not very funny in the sense that it was a bit of a disaster for us but we if you remember we built a team together that had the same personality type like everyone yeah everyone on the team yeah yeah had exactly the same and we did a Myers Myers Briggs Briggs and we were all uh, yeah we were and all. it was my personality and your personality type yeah <laughs> funnily yeah. enough right yeah, yeah yeah we went and found people who wow that person's great I, I, don't, I really like. Really, I don't know what it is. But I really, really like, like that choice. Like somehow I clicked with that. And I you know. And I and, <laughs> and, and I as I'm bringing people in, I'm 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 going by uh, a matrix that I use, you know, for for the for the different traits, knowledge, skills, habits, and behaviors. And I'm looking at these things where I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And I'm not even thinking at all about a mirroring type. thing, right? Right. At all. No. You know, I'm thinking like, it okay. It shows you how blind you can be. Really? Right? Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. totally blind to it as well. And so we actually, that, we actually literally took that Myers-Briggs test. The group analysis. And it came back and it was like, I think the HR guy who was helping us, Brett, was it? Brett Gordon. Brett Gordon. Brett said, I have never seen this before. <laughs> this is remarkable. We need some we need some J's in here. But just to yeah. follow up, I mean, it wasn't that funny in the sense that we kind of, it led us to disaster, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, and the disaster was, uh, well, our personality types were not very grounded in reality, right? It was a dreamers and visionaries. And, you know, so we, and then it kind of, I guess, reinforced itself into this sort of giant dreaming visionary activity 
and we were so far away from the reality of our product and and like our product being able to get delivered, mm -hmm. uh, there was just this enormous gulf, a, a big gap. I'd right. only been building the damn thing for like three months, and about a six-month gulf had opened up in three months between right where we were and where we thought we had dreamed ourselves to be, mm -hmm. and that was a disaster right, for us as a team. Definitely, yeah, we never really quite recovered from it. I don't think, yeah. um, which is unfortunate. But the fortunate thing was. Um, I learned to appreciate the value of personality diversity, which is not really a dimension of diversity I'd thought about before. Yeah. But then, if you remember, we then went on a concerted effort to find um, the S's, right? Um, so is, is, yeah, S's and J's. S's and J's. We needed S's and J's. Yeah. J's to kind of like bring us to some kind of conclusion. Yeah. And S's to ground us in data. That's what we lacked was yeah, any yeah, kind of yeah. grounding in the damn reality of the data. Yes. And so, yeah, yeah. and and then yes. So yeah, you know, I in Myers Briggs, we did. We recruited them. We got a strong, much stronger team as a result. Myers Briggs. What does the S stand for? I, I can't remember. Sensing. 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 So Sensing it's, it's like is judging. So, so it's, it's like you know, how am I going to start constructing some theory of reality? Am yeah. I going to not perceiving? Am I going to start in the clouds with some yeah. sort of metaphor or some sort of idea? Yeah. Or I'm going to start with the data in front of me, and I'm going to look at that. And I'm going to say, "This is what I know." Yeah, that's what an S does. Yeah, that's what we didn't do. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, so yeah, that was that's, yeah, that was so that, was, that, was that. that that does stick with me as well. Yeah. So it was a funny one, right? Never it happened was. to me before. Yeah. But it was funny. It's funny how you're blind to it. You know, I was blind to it, literally blind to it. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing about diversity is. If you don't have diversity or the right kinds of diversity, you're literally blind to something. You don't see it, mm -hmm. right? And so we got to, that's the value of the team or one of the values of the team is there's a, you know, a number of pairs of eyes there and they're all looking at something different. Yeah, and we are also looking at the traits of a team that were important to us um, that everybody contributed psychological safety and, and we had um, some structure we are we are group hiring we were all agreeing on the next roles we are all agreeing on how it should be structured um, what teams might look like it was every person that got added was part of that conversation nothing was done in silos so that was another philosophy we had and we were doing that it's just the type of people yeah we didn't have the right rule book for it what do you mean well well, we needed a rule book that said, well, along with these other kinds of diversity that we value, we also value, you know, other traits, personality diversity. Yeah, yeah, personality. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. Because then, then we adjusted the rule book, and then we, you're like, you know, oh yeah, and we came and recruited more people, like Karen, right? Yeah. Karen was a big, she's a big, big ass, right? I mean, yes, you know, yeah, and, and that really balanced us out, definitely. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, so here's the story. So, um, so we were opening a, uh, it was called a design, we called it the design lab. It was basically an innovation kind of, you know, facility for IBM in midtown Manhattan. And so I, I it was 25,000 square feet, it's going to be 14 teams as we built it out. And, um, I, my logistics had failed me and we, oh, we were flying, uh, the teams, already mostly existed, but they were very distributed. And so there was this sort of question about, you know, how are we going to handle that? And in the end, we just gave them 
time to sort of either opt in to write, um, you know, moving across the country into you know Manhattan area, or going to find something else to do. Uh, but that's what we were after was you know physically co-located, dedicated teams, and you know, which is uh, a foundation for me in pretty much all of my advice and work with people. Um, and so we were flying, we flew in like 80 people from all over the country and actually from outside the country as well. And unfortunately, due to logistical uh, errors and um, unfortunate uh, circumstances, uh, the, uh, the furniture hadn't arrived. So they all, they all arrived and there was no tables or chairs. But the, so the team rallied um, and built its own furniture. We, we basically raided, you know, old dusty old IBM, you know, you know, out of date, you know, corporate office parks and got chairs. And then we built um, tables. We literally built tables out of table legs and plywood um, boards um, and spent like a few days doing that. And it struck me. So you had saws and, you know, hammer, like you guys were yeah. building. Like, yeah. You had to yeah. go to Home Depot or yeah. Something, right? Yeah, that's where we got the legs from, was Home Depot. Yes. Um, and uh, that is actually has become a principle of mine now, which I would love to be able to pursue with a client. I have a dream of basically part of team formation is we build, we literally build our own space. So ideally what I would like to do is help a team and we give them a kit of parts, right? And I found these, I found these furniture companies, these open source furniture companies. That are pieces and then they just kind of, they will assemble together their kits. No, they're kits is what yeah. they are. So, so basically, their designs. So the designs are open sourced, and so they're flat packed furniture. They're made out of plywood, right? Or they could be coated laminated plywood. So you have white laminated plywood, that sort of thing. And then it's a design that gets downloaded to a local manufacturer um, who has a CNC router. So a CNC router is just a, you know what a router is. It's yeah. Like, yeah. So it's like a router that cuts the shapes yeah. out of like these four by six plywood sheets. Uh -huh. And then the CNC bit is just a computer numerical control. So it just is run on software. It's like a, um, you know, a 3D printer except for, yeah. you know, plywood sheets. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the, you download the software from the internet, you print, uh, you, you, um, uh, cut out the plywood and then you ship them, you know, locally. Right. Uh, I mean, it ought to actually totally revolutionize the office furniture supply chain, right? Because that is like, you know, it gets made in China and shipped. You know, if you look at things like Steelcase, it's very high quality furniture. But to me, the advantage is, you know, the teams assemble it on site. So you give them a kit of parts, you say, what would you like? Yeah. Right. Let's say we'd like, you know, six tables and we'd like, um, you know, these um, cubbies. For our stuff, we'd like a you know a, a, a drawers each. We'd like some whiteboards. And you say, okay, we'll order all that stuff for you. It's going to arrive on site here. Here's your space. Go build it and arrange it how you want. And to me, that's like there's no better way. I don't know if you mentioned. I don't think we mentioned this yet, but you know, all the literature and all the science says autonomy, right? And this is what I'm doing. Here, yeah, yeah. Is this is a ritual that is about um, signaling permission and giving in a very concrete way, yeah. helping people understand their autonomy as a team, which is, you know, um, extends to design and construction of their physical environment.
You know, it also lends itself really strongly to to a lot of data that the strongest teams are those teams that go do something together. Mm. Um, you know, when it's a, a rowing team has, you know, there's a lot of data on this where they've, they've, they've witnessed some tragedy or they've overcome something. Or, you know, there's, you know... Um, I'm sure we wouldn't have been that strong as a team if we hadn't had that disaster and we were able to rebuild ourselves and overcome it. Exactly. And we, we're really close still. We still are in contact with each other. So, and it's, you know, a few, it's been a few years now. So, right. And so there's there's a lot of, of that that's built into that model that you just talked about because, you know, they, they you've been the off-sites where you, you do a project together and then you remember some of these people, it's like four or five people that you guys built a bicycle together or something. Um, and there's that bond, right? It was short, short-lived. But um, what you're talking about is something that really plays into that psychology. Like, yeah, like we agree. did this together. And, well, you're you know, making like, your own story together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you know and, that, and that, yeah. that also, um, yeah, that, that is a, a, a source and a foundation of effective teams. Yeah, and the strongest ones were military. Military, of course. Well, they did do that all the time. Extreme. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the extreme. Well, so they've they been through together. Band of brothers and yeah. sisters. Yeah. Right? They build these things. That's how they know how to build effective teams. Yeah. They're going to withstand the rigors of combat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's always together as one. You know, there's definitely a lot, a lot of that built into their, their whole They also have a, a pretty cool, at least the U.S. military, has a pretty cool um, doctrines around team autonomy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, have we talked about this? Commander's intent. Yeah. Commander's intent. Right. Yeah. So to me, commander's intent is a perfect um, illustration of how a leader can create autonomous teams. Right. Which is, I'm going to clarify for you my intent for you guys. What What is it I would like you to do? I would like you to take that hill. That is my intent. Right, is for you to take that hill. Right now, what happens then? So we do a plan for how we're going to take the hill, but you know our plan didn't take account of the following machine gun nests and also the terrain and the fact that it had been raining the night before, and etc. 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 And our plan, you know, as some wise person said, doesn't was it Eisenhower? Doesn't um, survive first contact with the enemy. The plan does not survive first contact with the enemy. Right, so what do we do now? Well, we go, well, what was the commander's intent? Take that hill. All right, so now we gotta improvise, right, and find a way up the hill. But that, that commander's intent is, if you like, what allows the team to be autonomous. If there is no clear intent from the commander, yeah. what do we do now? Well, shit, I don't even know what the commander wanted. Right. right, right. I guess we just wait for some orders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, how can we be autonomous if we don't know the purpose? Right. And yeah. A lot of a lot of companies are not good at this. Right. Right. They're they're not good on both ways. They're they're overly directive. Right. So they want to micromanage you up the hill. While, prescriptive. Uh, yes, another great word for it. They're overly prescriptive. So they want to micromanage your way through the machine gun mess. Right, where their asses aren't getting shot off, mm-hmm. right? Or and or they don't they don't are they're unable to express their true intent. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean there's there's it's it's interesting how companies look at it. I look at it from my from my background in packaging and um so when I was 
packaging manager at an electronics company is the palm and and uh, we try to do a lot of innovative things and we did but early on it was almost impossible um, at the same time you know working through supply chain materials and all this stuff like that people are like well how much is it going to cost how much is it going to cost how much is it going to cost so I understand that but um, meanwhile VPs are putting the concepts of of the the, the iPod or the mini or whatever it was at the time and their packaging was completely innovative, completely different. They they completely renovated and to this day affect how packaging is done and you know with electronics, you know. And I would they would say, do this. And I would say, I would love your help. How can you help me? Because I've been trying, you know. And um so so and and is the approach, right? So the approach was was um, let's first look at cost. Let's look at that material. How much is it going to cost? Well, you don't know until the whole thing is put together and you create, you start with an experience. And, and so no one looks at an experience. They just look at cost. Right. And so similarly, it was the same way the facilities looked at it. It's like, you know, there is, there is standards for electricity where that goes, which I understand. There is standards for safety. I totally understand. Um, but nobody was going like, wait, what the space that these guys spend most of their lives, <laughs> more than with their families, um, has to be a certain way and they do not have a say. You know, and to just look at it like, you know, you just go, well, wait, like, but these guys are, shouldn't they enjoy? It kind of goes back to this, yeah, I know. It kind of goes back to this notion of like, um, how do we conceive of the work, right? I mean, you and I might violently agree, and we do, right, on the work, how the work happens. The work happens in these small, empowered, creative, dynamic teams, right, um, that have everything they need, that, that are supported by their management chains, yeah. who focus on, you know, um, identifying and removing their blockers and their impediments. This is, like, for us, so self-evident, that you know sometimes feels painful explaining to people, but other people have very very different ideas, conceive conceive of the work in very different ways, right? Yeah. And and so you know you're almost like talking past each other. No, work happens like as a, as a person they sit at a at their serial number at their cube, they open up their workstation and they work quietly doing that work. I'm like no. That's mm -hmm. not how it happens. At least not how the most valuable work happens and the problem-solving work happens, which is where we need to be focused. Um, but th I think that's part of the problem, right? Is that you know people have a lot of us have I would call very outdated ideas about how the work happens. And by the way, yeah. those ideas have been in existence for a very, very, very long period of time. Yeah. Um, and I was I thought like. Um, I originally thought I had this idea that it was basically a industrial post-industrial thing. Like the industrial age wanted this kind of, you know, hyper-specialized, highly obedient, instruction-following, you know, drone, if you like. And I'm I'm kind of you know caricaturing it a little bit, but basically that's what the you know the factory needed. Yeah. Right, was sort of reliability and repeatability, right? Yeah. And that this post-industrial age needs a completely different thing. 
it's like problem solving and creativity and initiative and innovation and adaptability and resilience, uh, right? You know, because our environments change and how values created has changed. And a lot of that, that industrial age stuff is, has been or is being automated, right? But then I thought, well, actually, and I'm reading about this, actually that, that obedience, that requirement for obedience actually started with the advent of agriculture, which is thousands of years before Christ, right? That, you know, if you think about agriculture, right, compared to nomadic um, uh, hunter-gathering societies that were in existence before agriculture, right, agriculture requires, you know, it's a very, very low tolerance for risk, right? You can't experiment with the crops because you will die, right? Because you, you don't feed anyone. And very, very high obedience, and right, we're following instructions, and right, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is this explains it to me, is that the world of work for thousands of years has been about this, has been about this obedience, and about following instruction, and you know, low risk, fear, fear, kind of you know, dominated environment, yeah. and you know, we're we're straining to kind of break away from that and for good reason, right? That you don't just easily discard thousands of years of human culture. Yeah. You know, interestingly, yes. hunter-gatherers are kind of a, a, a type of culture we're, we're looking for, right? They're, they're kind of the original knowledge workers, right? They, 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 um, they had to have and possess in their heads a whole ton of knowledge about their environments, about how you know, the, the animals they were tracking behaved, how they could catch them, kill them, right, and made their own tools, right? Um, you know, they, they, they're, they, we need to get back there. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I have two more questions. So one, the one question I, I, I love to ask people is what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? And like much younger. Much younger. Younger version could be last year, I guess. <laughs> but like, you know, um, you know, take a time and, and, uh, well, and what advice would that be? I mean, it's not an interesting question because I feel like we we are who we are through different periods of our lives. And yeah. so when I look at my younger self, I could be, oh my God, dude. <laughs> really? <laughs> that would be one reaction. Was that the advice? <laughs> <laughs> That would be one reaction. Would be really. I mean, come on, whiskey tango foxtrot. Uh, yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. right. And so you know, and this is the arrogance I had, and you know, and like I thought I knew it all. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm like, well, now you're just an old man. You know what I mean? It's like, um, you know, I. The advice I would give, I, I, I would be tempted to give would be advice that only a 49-year-old could actually uh, receive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wouldn't even be appropriate for a 20-something-year-old. But okay, so, so then if you had to go back and shake the shit out of the younger version of yourself and give the advice, oh, what would it be? Yeah. Uh, and go like, you're going to have to listen to me. I know you're not really going to listen to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like more and more, um, the, the value that 
or, or the way I want to spend my time is uh, building and enjoying relationships with people. And so that's what really matters to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I prioritized that mm -hmm. in my 20s. That's good. I was after like, you know, other things, fame and glory and, you know, career. But then, you know, again, I was saying like, okay, but you had all those things. So now you're, you know, you have the luxury of looking back and saying, no, you shouldn't have prioritized that. You should have prioritized this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways, you know, to, I'm here because I was there. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? You had, you had to go through that. Yeah, and you, you know, every yeah. step has another step. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but yet, I think that if I could have persuaded myself to, you know, prioritize that more. Yeah, I think you know that to me is you know what's valuable. Yeah. yeah. Like oh, that. the other thing is, I wish I had discovered meditation a little earlier. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm with you on that one. Mm -hmm. I only saw I was like 40, 47. I mean, meditate, and I, I do a lot now. Yeah, you know, yeah. thirty minutes to an hour every day. Yeah, and um, it's just transformed me. Yeah, so so profoundly. Yeah, um, yeah I wish I I wish I discovered that earlier. Yeah, no, that's good. That would be. I would definitely do that one too. You would. Yeah, I would go back and tell myself that yeah. that one. But well. then, would your earlier self listen? Probably. How would you persuade them? I with the way I think I've always been is um and my wife could probably um, kind of confirm this is that i i would go okay maybe and but i always process it and it takes me like a week or a couple days and then i come back to oh yeah you know that, that would, that's not a bad idea and she does it all the time to me and she suggests things like a note and then i go you know that's a good idea actually so i don't i usually kind of do that um and i think i did more of that when i was younger so I, I got another question. So the next question is, um, I kind of like this question because it's kind of fun. And this is a fun question. It's like, you know, fantasy football. Fantasy football, you pick all your favorite players from multiple, multiple teams. If you had your own company, um, which you do, actually. Um, <laughs> so now you have your own company. Yeah. And if you could pick your, your, your fantasy team, anybody from history, alive or dead, or even fictional characters, cartoons, Marvel comics, whatever it is, um, from books, uh, if you come up with your fantasy team uh, for your company, and it, maybe it's a different kind of company, and if you want to invent that company right now, go ahead, but who would those characters be, who would you want in your, in your, in your presence? Hmm. I kind of reject that whole idea for some reason. That was what? my first thought. You reject it. I'll tell you what. Uh, so Toyota, it's just a, it's just a Toyota, fun question. I don't reject it. Because I don't, I, can, I guess I don't think that way or even. So here's what I like to do is I like to right. take, I like to take ordinary people and help them become extraordinary. That's maybe why I'm like. Oh yeah. I think Toyota is quoted on this, right? It's like. So, yeah. They have this, you know, it's back to this thing about environment systems, right? It's like you mean the we, Toyota's lean model, you mean that model? Yeah, the Toyota yeah. production system, the uh -huh. Toyota way, right? Which is a kind of a complete system of management, you know, from the, the person working on the line through to the chairman of the company, right? Um, and everybody has and, control and they, of the, the production line. Everyone can, can stop it, you mean like that? That's one of the, that's one of the principles. It's not just principle, they act on it every day. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, 
person working on the production line has as much authority as the chairman to change the process, uh, which kind of stems from this notion that you know the people doing the work are the ones who are best able to describe how it should be done. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obvious, right? When you think about it. Um, yeah, but that's their philosophy: is we take ordinary people and we help them become extraordinary through our system. So that's kind of my philosophy as well. Yeah. I'd rather, you know, for me, like the, the most gratification I've ever had in my career is when I've taken people who are struggling or disillusioned or burnt out or otherwise not engaged and be able through these environmental things, right, to help them, right, um, find, you know, motivation, yeah. energy, you know, direction and purpose, right? Yeah. Um, those things are the most rewarding to me. So I don't know about these famous people from the past. It's yeah. Like, I don't know what they, they'd be like. Yeah, and, and you did tell me something before, and as long the lines of I'd rather take a group of, of C students uh, yeah. rather than a couple of A top notch A plus students. Yeah. Like this, this back to this idea of human potential, right? It's like, you know, yeah. Every every human has the most extraordinary potential, and mm -hmm. it's just about figuring out how to unlock it. Ben Edwards is a consultant as part of the Edwards and Sender team, where they co-authored Patterns of Work, a book about new, up-to-date ways to be effective. You could see more content like this on PatternsOfWork.com. Thanks so much for listening to this show this week. If you like this episode, share it out with a friend on Twitter or Instagram via at bourbon and pie or you can go to facebook and you should find us there as always we want to hear from you so we can make bourbon and pie even better so email us with ideas and questions at 411 at bourbon our show this week is produced by dr carl and captain mo theme song by brox caressi and compiled by fm mixmaster Thanks to Ben Edwards for advice and not only being a part of this podcast, but as my mentor, helped conceive the idea. Also, my good friend, Scott Sheepshagger Copper, who came up with calling this podcast Bourbon and Pie. Also, thanks to Dr. Carl for audio mastering and editing and tolerated me for several hours at a time. Audio mixing was also done by FM Mixmaster, and I can't be thankful enough for my wife, Kelly Escobar. Boom, boom. Your energy and ideas and support and love have helped me in so many ways. I love you so much, and I look forward to you every day. Our unsung hero this week is my mom, Sylvia Butterfly Escobar. All I can say is, thanks, Mom, for being you and always being there for me. Now let's get you walking again and get you back home. I'm Chris Escobar saying that bourbon and pie brings out the best and pie brings in the best to your belly. If you're curious about getting my help as a private coach or even a team coach and enhance your effectiveness personally, then I have some questions for you. Go to bourbonandpie.com slash mission possible and answer some questions. And if I see your answers aligned to something I think I can help with, I'll reach out to you and find some time for us to talk. Be looking out for more bourbon and pie podcasts on Podbean or wherever you get your podcast. My drink and mushroom have too much fat, but we bring it on home and do it on the fly. A bourbon and pie, a bourbon and pie. Of course, it down half bourbon and pie. This is a boom boom production.